All right. So what are we doing today? It's kind of a follow-up from our discussion of Bell's theorem and Bell's inequality. We touched upon it a little bit as David Bohm and his take on quantum mechanics. So we wanted to go into more detail about Bohmian mechanics. And it was kind of an excuse for, I think, both of us to look into something that we are both interested in, but maybe haven't spent as much time as we should have kind of sinking our teeth into it. Yeah, it's definitely like a a theory that, I mean, from generally from what I've read, uh, it's been kind of revitalized starting in the 90s. But like in the last couple of years, I feel like I've I've seen a lot of like pilot wave type you know, in, in like pop science. So it is something, yeah, that I did want to look more into. Yeah, exactly. And I think talking about it a little bit before hitting record, I think we both found found some books and looked into things a little bit online. At least I did. I don't know what you did online, but yeah, I got some, some stuff to talk about. Yeah, I kind of read through a book, or at least the important parts of a book, looked up some stuff online, watched a few videos. And yeah, I can definitely say I am no Bohmian mechanic pilot wave uh, expert um, mm-hmm. at this point. But uh, I think I have like a, a okay sense of some of the major differences between, you know, kind of the standard Copenhagen interpretation and uh, Bohmian mechanics. Yeah. And maybe that's a, actually a good place to start is talking about the fact that there are interpretations of quantum mechanics, like that those even exist, like that, that quantum mechanics isn't, you know, set in stone as it exists. People are still trying to figure out what does it actually mean? Yeah. So I've heard of like, you know, at least three big ones. And there, I know there's even more than that. You know, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of an interesting thing that like kind of one of the key things, I think, for any interpretation of quantum mechanics and like a, a thing to realize is that in order for it to be like a, an interpretation of it is it can't have like different predictions. So these aren't different, you know, like all these theories, all these interpretations have the same predictive power, at least in their realm of applicability. But it's kind of like the ontology behind them is different. Like it has a, it, it describes a different reality. Right. Yeah. And yeah, everyone agrees, everyone being physicists, physicists who study quantum mechanics all agree the outcome of experiments, quantum mechanics predicts those outcomes. And we see the predictions, you know, seen through to the the results of the experiment confirm what we know of quantum mechanics. The question is, what does it mean? <laughs> and And I think, you know, we're all taught in school, the textbooks go through the Copenhagen interpretation, which I think David Merman, was the one who coined the term shut up and calculate as the name for the Copenhagen interpretation, which I think really encapsulates what the interpretation means. It's like, don't worry too much about what it really means, but just do the calculations, trust the math, and you'll get the right answer. And that's really all that matters. That's kind of the Copenhagen interpretation. Yeah, it has has really high predictive power, really strong predictive power. Right. Where it agrees, you know, like our experiments agree really well with theory. So, it, you know, don't worry about what it's the underlying things that are happening behind there, you know, behind the curtain. Just, you know, we know how to calculate an outcome and you start there. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, Copenhagen is essentially you have a wave function that describes the system. It evolves through time following Schrodinger's equation. And then what Schrodinger equation tells you is the odds of certain outcomes happening, essentially. So 
the way I like to describe it is thinking about horse racing. And if you've ever been to a horse race, like in person, or maybe followed one online, if you're betting or something like that, the odds for each horse are printed ahead of time, like in the newspaper, you can look them up, but they change over time leading up to the start of the race. And the odds are actually fluctuating based on who's betting on which horse. And so Schrodinger's equation is essentially telling you how those odds are going to change. And it, it is deterministic. Like you start with initial odds and you let the Schrodinger equation evolve the wave function, the odds over time. And then at the end or at the start of the race, you're going to see what the odds were that Schrodinger equation told you. So those odds started at something, they changed to something else. Everything is completely agreed upon, understood in quantum mechanics. Schrodinger equation tells you how those odds change. The problem is the second you make a measurement, you're going to get an outcome of one of those horses that's going to win the race. That's where quantum mechanics and Copenhagen essentially falls flat. Is it, it can't tell you how to go from the odds of all the horses at the start of the race to one horse finishing. All you know are the odds and then you end up with one winner. Right, yeah, it's 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 almost like uh, I, at least I feel like this is a fair uh, add-on to this analogy, and you can you know correct me if you think otherwise. But uh, it's almost like with the Copenhagen interpretation, it's like the one horse that finishes was like you know the only horse at the end of the race. Right, like there there weren't other horses now. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's yeah, exactly. It's just you know all of the horse race reality of the horse race has collapsed to use the technical word that we say down into one horse and that's the only horse that exists and moving forward you know if you if you made a measurement again like which horse is there there's still only going to be that one horse like the reality exists as that horse but up until that race was run we didn't know that all the horses existed and yeah maybe and like you know this might be something that we can go in general deeper into you know in terms of like you know i, I think this might be an ongoing thing for us where we kind of look at different interpretations and you know we we start we're going to start here with with bohmian mechanics but we could also delve more into you know the copenhagen interpretation sure later which is kind of you know more of the standard thing which i think is why we're not start starting there if, if you've had a quantum mechanics class then you know that interpretation right yeah. And a lot of times people say the problem with Copenhagen is is the measurement problem. The act of measuring, you end up with one result at the end. Quantum mechanics is no way to tell you how that happened. Like all I can tell you are the odds leading up to the measurement and then after the measurement it can tell you what happens, but the actual measurement we don't there is no explanation for it in Copenhagen. And I don't even well I was going to say I don't know that there are answers in the other interpretations, but that's not totally true. I think th that measurement problem is the hidden kind of issue that interpretations are trying to get at. They're trying to say, okay, let's do all the predictions that Copenhagen does, but then let's also try and explain that measurement, like what's happening there. Yeah. Why is there that gap in the Copenhagen interpretation? Yeah, yeah. What's what's actually you know you know going on here? Let's not just shut up and calculate. Let's let's mm -hmm. try and um, just. I think the. Um, the hard part, though, like or like the, is that that you can't on the uh, at least you know right now in history and maybe this might not be true for all interpretations, but like you can't differentiate between the two any of the interpretations at least Bohmian mechanics and Copenhagen in terms of like a measurement that you could perform right now. Uh, That's right. Yeah these these are all 
you know, they, they all make the same predictions. Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics makes, you know, that the experimental results are all predicted to be the same in all of these interpretations. But uh, one of the books that I checked out called The Ghost in the Atom, which has interviews by several different physicists about this topic. And one of them is Bohm. One of the physicists is Bohm himself. And the interviewer asks him, well, since you can't propose an, a measurement to, to, to or an experiment to test your interpretation, why should it be taken seriously? And he came back with, well, if if that was the only requirement to have a viable scientific idea, then so many scientific ideas of the past would have been shot down before we even had an idea to think about them. Like no one would have heard of them. And he specifically went back, you know, to Democritus bringing up the the idea of the concept of an atom. And he's like, it took 2000 years before we can get an experiment to show atoms exist. But the idea has been there for 2000 years. And it's been, you know, on people's minds and people had been thinking about it since then. So it doesn't make it any less valid of a theory because we didn't yeah, have an experiment yeah. so we, for it. We, you know, you know, we might not be able to, yeah, find an experiment right now that can tease out the difference between uh, any two interpretations of quantum mechanics. But that's not to say that, like, if you follow that interpretation deep enough, at some point, you will be able to say, oh, here's a difference between these two, and we can now test this. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. But the fact that all these interpretations are out there and competing, I think this is a really interesting field of physics. And I, I would think it's actually a little unfortunate that it's not, since it is kind of skating really close to philosophy, it's not taken seriously, like super seriously. Like if your field of research was interpretations of quantum mechanics coming out of grad school, like you probably wouldn't be able to find an academic job very easily without doing something else. Like there's not that many quantum mechanics interpretation physicists out there that that's all they do. You know, a lot of them do it on the side. A lot of them publish kind of weird papers out there and someone discovers it decades later and says, hey, this is kind of legit. We should probably pay attention to this. All the interpretation namesakes and and people who came up with them have kind of been lost to obscurity and then looked back upon and people realize yeah, the like, genius um, of their work. As a quick aside, we won't delve into it in this podcast, but you know, the many worlds interpretation is probably the I feel like the next biggest one after uh, the Copenhagen interpretation, or maybe with Bohm. But exactly. the guy that I heard Sean Carroll speak and he was talking about um, a guy that came up with that theory, uh, Hugh Everett. Apparently, he got like laughed out mm -hmm. of out of the field. Like they're like, this is just ludicrous right, what you're right. saying. Like, don't even. You know, why are you even bringing this up? Like, it, we've already have it figured out, you know. And so, yeah, it is a little, right. you know, a, a little downside to um, physics. And that's actually like uh, the book that I I checked out. I didn't read uh, that part of it, but it's by uh, James T. Cushing. And it's just called, well, the full title is uh, Quantum Mechanics, Historical Contingency and the Copenhagen Hegemony. Hegemony? How do you say? Yeah. Hege yeah. Hegemony. Hegemony, but, uh, either one. <laughs> By the way, that's my wife's favorite word. All her students oh, know that that's her favorite but, word. Yeah. So in this book, <laughs> he talks about the Copenhagen interpretation and he talks about the Bohmian interpretation. And then uh, the part that I didn't read um, that he kind of goes into is like, why did we pick one over the other? Because actually, uh, at the, the same time that they were coming up with the Copenhagen interpretation, interpretation de, de Broglie, i think that's how you say his name right 
<laughs> De, De Broglie, De Broy. Uh, let's see if yeah. uh, Wikipedia <laughs> can tell me. Uh, but anyways, he proposed this theory of of pilot waves back in you know 1927 or something like that. Um, and you know, like mm-hmm. uh, Everett, he got laughed at for his. I think like Polly was one of the bigger dissenters of his theory that kind of put him. So he actually like turned and said, "Okay, I'm going to go with the Copenhagen interpretation." Um, and then it just kind of right. sat pilot wave theory sat there doing nothing until Bohm picked it up in the 50s. Uh, but so he kind mm-hmm. of talks about in this book, like, why is that the case? And like, could it have gone the other way? And like, what would that mean? I didn't read that part of it, at least yet. And I, that's probably, you know. Yeah, there there are a lot of books on this topic. One that I didn't check out was a collection of letters written between physicists, including Bohm and Einstein and uh, I think de Broglie was actually in there and Paul Dirac. I don't know, a whole collection of physicists writing to each other about Bohemian mechanics, essentially, and the letters that they're exchanging of support of Bohm, who, if we get into the history, just to touch upon the history a little bit, is he had a position, I believe, at Princeton during the Red Scare and was called to testify against colleagues and to, to out, basically, communists within the academy and he refused he pled the fifth and said no i will not go and because of that he lost his position at princeton and was not hired back even though later on the courts found that pleading the fifth is completely legal like he was he did nothing wrong to do that and obviously we look back on that as a, a terrible blemish on american history and the judis- ju- judicial blemish on american history yeah <laughs> and Boom, I got another job, but he, he he left for the United Kingdom and got a job in England as a professor. But yeah, he he lost his work because of that. And and Einstein wrote a letter in support of Bohm at the, the university in England as a, essentially a letter of reference from Einstein himself supporting wow. Bohm. That would be great to have in your Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I read it and it was, you know, he's he, Einstein was like, this guy does some amazing work. People don't realize how smart he is, but he's doing some great stuff. And actually, one of the books we'll talk about, I took the class from the author of the textbook, who was, when I took the class, the, the professor was very old and about to retire, but he had been at UC Santa Cruz for a long time. And they were hiring for a physics professor. And one of the physicists who did one of the few experiments that tested Bell's theorem, not aspect, but um, I think his name is Klaus Seer. I forget his name. He applied for the position, I believe. And the department said, no, he's doing fringe experiments on, you know, the nature of quantum mechanics. We don't want that type of work happening here. And <laughs> my professor fought to get this guy here because he's like, this guy's brilliant. He's doing really important work testing quantum mechanics. But they thought it was too fringe and he didn't get the job. Yeah. I mean, it also sounds like, like you know, one of the, the big things that you need to do as a research professor, especially at like a UC, is you know, you have to be able to publish papers and right. this stuff just, it sounds like it's just not, you know, like it's probably not going to get published in like Scientific American or something. Actually, maybe, maybe Scientific American would be the one to publish it, but not like a standard mm-hmm. physics. Uh, yeah. They did just come out with a new test of Bell's theorem that, you know, one of the problems is the the like inherent in randomness, like of random number generators is, you know, how good can you really get a random number from a computer? And they, they came up with a new way actually with video games online and people across the world playing this video game. And basically the key clicks of the people playing the game were the inputs for the random number generator. 
And so they use this huge data set to pull actual randomness to start the experiment, to get the initial conditions completely random. And that, that was just published, I think, in Nature pretty recently, like oh. within the last couple months. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So I guess my point is that experiments do get published when they... I, I do think there's some sort of change happening recently to test these interpretations, or at least, you know, test Bell's theorem, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think it, it's like more accepted to talk about these things, which is why we're hearing about, you know, Bohmian mechanics and the many mm-hmm. worlds interpretation. Um, yeah. You know, I did see when I was in grad school that they did a survey of physicists at a conference asking them which interpretation they felt aligned with or thought was, you know, the, the way to go. And I think many worlds won out and it yeah. definitely wasn't Copenhagen. And I'm pretty sure many worlds was the one that most people lend or um, were leaning towards. And I remember talking to a grad student when I was in this class. He, this guy wasn't in the class, but I remember talking to him about taking the class. And he's like, well, isn't it just, uh, isn't it just decoherence? Isn't that just the answer? And I was like, well, that's presented as one of the you know, competing interpretations. So yeah, you, you get taught these other interpretations and they kind of just chalk it up and say, well, that's the one. But we don't really know. There's lots of different viable options out there. So why don't we get into Bohmian mechanics? We haven't actually said what it is. Right, yeah. <laughs> We've well, talked about Bohm, the, the person, and a few other interpretations. Right. But, um, yeah, I think that's a great idea. But one second. I just clicked it. I just needed to hear it on Wikipedia. The broy is how it, the computer says. Yeah, <laughs> but, the bears. But, but the broy, uh, yeah. apparently. Is, There's uh, a clip of Feynman pronouncing it de broglie and he's like i'm a terrible american and that's how i pronounce it <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know that's always stuck with me but I, that is right. how i learned it is de broglie but i, I know that's not right <laughs> I, well wikipedia said de broy de broy yeah but i don't know a lick of french so yeah same i'm gonna go with uh whatever wikipedia tells me it is mm-hmm. you know someone just programmed it in or, like yesterday to make it say like butthead or something i have no idea right (laughs) Uh, but i'm gonna trust wikipedia yeah okay sorry sorry for that side quest yeah so okay what is uh bohmian mechanics what is the interpretation or pilot wave theory is another name for it Mm -hmm. so the way i understand it the simple explanation i have which i tried to find textbooks that were like these are the equations and the library just didn't have that i I don't know where those textbooks are they must exist somewhere because i've seen the equations on talks on youtube videos of people giving conference proceedings about it and i've seen the equations they're one at them, um they're at yeah. research libraries i have one. Oh, okay uh, yeah. by holland it's called the quantum theory of motion okay cool yeah so my san diego public library did not have a textbook that had it or at least i didn't find it maybe it's there somewhere but i didn't see it so the way i understand it is there in copenhagen you have the schrodinger equation and that's it it's schrodinger equation and then measurement. And that's that's the whole story. In Bohmian mechanics, you still have Schrodinger's equation with the wave fun- function, but there's an additional equation that essentially it represents the path that the particle takes, which is not given by the Schrodinger equation. The Schrodinger equation is a wave equation, and that wave function gives rise to a quantum potential or force that directs the actual particles position and path in that second equation and yeah. the two kind of feed into each other so you have you have essentially a second equation added into quantum mechanics yeah a guiding equation is i think one of the ways that they refer to it and it, yeah it's it's uh it gives the velocity of the particle i believe but it, it's 
based on the wave function as well. So yeah, both of those things, you know, essentially there is the wave function still, Mm -hmm. and then it evolves according to Schrodinger's equation. But then that while it's evolving, it's also guiding a, a physical particle, you know, in, in a certain direction through this quantum potential. Right. So the, the pattern that's produced from the double slit experiment, for example, it's the wave function that exists between the source of the particle and the screen with detectors, you know, showing where the particle hits the screen after passing through two slits. That wave does go through both slits. The particle itself doesn't. It just follows the crests and troughs, kind of bounces around the wave, being guided by the wave, and it does pass through one or the other slit, the actual particle, and then hits the screen following the pattern of the wave function that the wave function set up. So there's a particle that kind of, it's like meandering through these valleys inside the wave function. Right. Yeah. So like, like I think the, the let's like, I want to focus on the double slit experiment a little bit. Mm-hmm. where you know we shine light let's start with young's double slit with light right and you shine it through two slits and you get an interference pattern on the other side provided it's coherent light and all that jazz uh the sizes are right and like that feels could be strange it could be normal you know because like you know, we can treat light sometimes like a particle or a ray and sometimes we can treat it like a wave but then, then we say, okay, all right, let's let's treat or let's do the same experiment, but we're gonna do it with electrons, which, like, I think you know, at the time of this being done, it's like, okay, an electron is a is a particle, like that's what we know it as, like that's what we think. And then when you do it with an electron, you get an interference pattern on the other side, which is like that that is was is really mind blowing. And so it's saying, okay, wait, wait, an electron is is a is a wave. It's a way, and then that's where, kind of, you know, Copenhagen term says says there's a wave function that's describing this electron, and that's it. But then Bohmian mechanics says no, the electron is still there. There's also a wave function. Both of those things exist, and the wave function guides the electron. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. That that's the pilot wave. It's piloting the particle through the wave function through space through the experiment through the ap- apparatus. All of that. The wave function exists and it's, yeah, it's, it's described essentially through Schrodinger's equation, as we know, as, as, you know, everyone who takes quantum mechanics in school understands. But there's just another equation that's showing the particle itself, how it's being forced by the wave function into these particular positions, locations, velocities. And one reason this might just like feel nice right off the bat is when you do the double slit experiment with an electron when it 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 goes through the the, the slits and uh interferes with itself or yeah who's you know if you're doing single electron then it hits some some screen on the other side some uh detector but it hits it as a as a like a point it's not like hitting all the all spaces of the detector at once it's hitting you know we're we're seeing it uh, the detector seeing it at a single point so it it feels like there's an electron there right you know like a particle particle, exactly the particle Um, exists still yeah uh which in in the copening interpretation this is where we say there's a collapse of the wave function to that that point but bohm says don't worry about that it just hits it yeah there's an electron there 
Yeah. We lose, essentially we lose wave particle duality in Bohmian mechanics. There is the wave, which is something separate from the particle. And the wave is just guiding the particle through space. And I, th- I think one slight uh, important thing to point out is that Bohmian mechanics, everything we've said so far, is true of non-relativistic um, yes. quantum mechanics. They're actually, right. I don't, you know, we can talk about this later, but there isn't a relativistic version of Bohmian mechanics yet. It's right. an accepted one that I know of. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. I didn't explicitly, <laughs> I, was, I didn't hear that somewhere, but it makes sense. The, the, yeah, this is not relativistic. Something else to note is a place that this is demonstrated really well is a video by Veritasium. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, um, I think it's called, Is This What Quantum Mechanics Looks Like? is the title of the video. And it's, a, I, I don't remember exactly what the fluids are, but let's say it's water on a speaker that's kind of being vibrated, like one of those standing wave plates kind of things where you get these waves, these troughs and crests of water. And then there's a drop of oil that's dyed a different color, like black or something like that, that's bouncing around on the water waves. And he says like, this is the particle and the wave itself forms its shape, you know, as we understand through Schrodinger's equation and the particle itself is just guided by these waves across different situations and they do the double slit experiment showing the wave function itself of the water waves but then the oil drop bouncing along the water waves as it goes through the double slit pattern like through the double slits hits a wall on the other side yeah what one of the yeah that's it's a really cool video it kind of like is a good uh analogy of kind of like what Bohm is talking about. Did he ever use the word Bohmian mechanics in the video? I don't. I remember watching it and thinking that's what he was talking about, but I don't remember him actually calling it out and saying that he this might have is said pilot wave. I feel pilot like. wave. Okay. But uh, w- one of the the key differences though between that and Bohmian mechanics is you know in reality that oil drop is bouncing on the water and it it is creating waves. It's interacting with the water right. itself. In right. Bohmian mechanics. The particle does not act on the wave function. Only yeah, so the wave function acts on the particle. The particle doesn't press on the wave function and, and make an indentation itself like the oil drop on a water w- wave would. Right. Yep. So I think to tie this back into what we talked about with Bell's theorem is Bell's theorem said all quantum mechanics predicts the all interpretations of quantum mechanics predict the results of the spin measurements on two different particles. And it, it has to go with the cosine of the angle between the detectors. And go listen to the last episode about Bell's theorem to f- find all the details of that. But there's a, a particular prediction that quantum mechanics makes. And that's regardless of the interpretation. All of, of quantum mechanics interpretations make that same prediction. And what Bell's theorem ruled out was quantum mechanics and local hidden variable theories being both correct. So you can't have quantum mechanics being correct and a local hidden variable theory of reality being correct. Right. Now, and, and, oh, yeah. I was going to say as a, a quick, just a quick summary or a reminder, but I think the way we described that in last time was, you know, when this particle, this particle decays into two other particles, one spin up and one spin down or vice versa, they're in a superposition. Uh, it's, it's, Bohm said, let me imagine there's, you know, some hidden stamp that we can't see is how we put it on these particles that that's labeling this as spin up or spin down. And and if you make that assumption, then you don't end up you end up with a, a inequality that can't be true based on 
experiment that we've done so far with quantum mechanics. So right. he's kind of ruling out that locally stamped on these particles ahead of time is a spin up or spin down sign. Right. Bell. Bell. I think you said bone. But oh, bell, oh, sorry. Bell yeah, it was that. bell. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. These hidden stamps on these particles, they don't exist. They can't exist. And quantum mechanics also be true. But we've done tests and it's it's one or the other. And the tests show that quantum mechanics is right. So that was that's Bell's theorem and Bell's inequality. No local hidden variables can exist with quantum mechanics. But we have space for non-local hidden variables. And I'll admit, I don't I can kind of fudge an explanation of non-local hidden variables with Bohmian mechanics. Do you have a, a a good one? Something you think is good that explains why Bohmian mechanics is considered a non-local hidden variable theory? Because I, I know it is, but I don't really know what about it makes it non-local hidden variable. I don't know in a great detail. This was like one of this is one of the topics that they covered in the book that I read, but it was a little beyond me um, in the moment. But uh, I think like the the way. I kind of got it is there's is Bohmian mechanics is causal, meaning measuring one of the particles causes the other one to be the other way through a uh, non-local instantaneous some, you know, interaction interaction. Yeah. 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 And it's I think what what trips me up is thinking about the pilot wave theory with the double slit experiment, I got a great visual for that. Like my mind can grasp what that looks like and how that works. When we start doing Bohm's version of the EPR paradox or EPR experiment, Bohm's version being the two spins separated, two particles really far apart, and the spins are measured on each particle separately. There is a wave function that describes both those particles, and Bohmian mechanics shows the wave function existing across all of space between those particles. And they have a value at each position, at each location that the measurement happens for any position of the spin detector. And I, I, I don't have a great picture of that, but it, it's essentially the wave function would have to be, would have to exist in a certain way that anytime the detector on one end measures up, if the detector is in the same position on the other side and measures the other particle, it's going to give it spin down. And somehow the wave function communicates or it's not that it communicates that's what that's where i get tripped up is there's not a signal right being sent it's that 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 pilot wave has answers to all those questions ahead of time and it's non-local because one detector's positioning the answer for that is encoded at that place in space as it is at the other detector in the same position the answer is also encoded there and so it's like Bohmian mechanics' answer across all of space, given the initial conditions, it's just, it exists already. It's set up ready to give you the answers that you see in quantum mechanics. And I think that's the non-local part. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's predictive to, to some level. In this case, this experiment, yeah, it's pr predictive. You know, I, I think it, the, there is, is, you know, a... a you know, I'm not even going to try and venture a guess. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I'm kind of doing like, too, is like I can piece it together, but I don't have a great explanation as like Bell is non-local because of this. Like, right. <laughs> Well, maybe that's something we could um, focus on on a, on a future sure. topic. Uh, but like I think one of the key things though to note with Bohmian mechanics, uh, I, I mean, I don't think this necessarily is like ruled out in the Copenhagen interpretation, but you don't really talk about it is... Uh, in Bohmian mechanics, there's a wave function of the universe. Right. Like, like 
it's not just like your electron or your you know your two particles or whatever the the whole universe is involved you, that and you have to take that into account right yep in googling and looking stuff up online did you ever come across a youtube channel called looking glass universe uh that sounds familiar that might have been one of the earlier videos that i watched it's a female narrator who's i think australian apologies if it's new zealand i'm not sure but she has a series of videos talking about Bohmian mechanics and they're pretty good. And she brings up something I hadn't seen in any, any of the books I read, um, something called contextuality. Did you see that anywhere? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. So she highlights a problem in Bohmian mechanics, a problem in the sense that it sounds like it shouldn't be right, but it doesn't, it's not a problem in that it, it makes a wrong prediction. All the predictions are still correct. It just feels wrong. So the contextuality is, if you measure spin up, you would expect that the particle was spin up no matter how you measured it. Like if you measured your our height, like which is some aspect of reality for us, if I measured my height, I would get the same answer if I used a certain, you know, if I used a ruler and stacked it a bunch of times if I did it well enough, and if I used a tape measure, and if you use some like laser you know, sighting range distance reader, right? Like right. I, I should get the same answer for my height, no matter how I measure it. Right. But Bohmian mechanics has a problem where that if you measure spin up, when you measure it a particular way, you could get spin down if you measure the same particle in a different way. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't, uh, I don't think I ran across that. Like, yeah, like set up the experiment, run your experiment, you'll get spin up, set up a different experiment, but it's the same initial conditions you're going to measure spin down. Huh. And it's it's a particular problem with spin, not velocity or momentum or mass or things like that, but it's a spin problem. Yeah, that that was one thing I like most of the stuff that I looked at all just said okay, like we're going to we're going to talk about spinless particles or like pretend particles aren't like the spin isn't involved in this measurement. I didn't get right. too deep into uh, anything to do with spin in Bohmian mechanics. Yeah. But that's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard that, but I, apparently that is an issue with Bohmian mechanics. But it's still, I mean, you know, the, the, the measuring of spin up or spin down, it's still a probabilistic up or down thing. So you still get up and down 50% of the time if it's a sideways spinning particle in the setup of the experiment. So you still get the same predictions, you still get the same results that you would predict, but it's just it has the problem that if you analyze it, you know, absent of the experiment, but you do the physics, if you measure it a different way in your theoretical experiment, you would get an, an upside down answer if you did the experiment a different way, which should <laughs> give you in, in Copenhagen, it should give you the same answer. So there is a contradiction there. I, I wonder, I almost wonder if you could um, tease that out by doing repeated measurements on the same particle. Yeah, it didn't, it, it made it sound like it it wasn't something that was testable, but it was a prediction. Like yeah, it, yeah. It, it was something you could see on pencil and paper, but not in an actual experiment. Yeah, it sounds like it, it, it wouldn't be a, a, a testable thing if it's really based on initial conditions. Right. Which is, is you know, an important thing to talk about with Bohmian mechanics. Maybe I was just going to say, yeah. The next thing we should uh, uh, move on to because, you know, there's so far we've pretty much said like, okay, Bohmian mechanics is predictive. It says, you know, like we can know where this particle is going to go because we know Schrodinger's equation. We have this guiding equation. So 
that like begs the question, okay, what about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle? How does that fall into the situation? Because we know that that must be be true, right? Right. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe it falls away in Bohmian mechanics. There is no uncertainty principle. It's It comes down to our inability to set up the same experiment with infinite precision. Yeah, that's kind of like the way I, I saw it represented is is you know we get the the the, ugh, the statistical nature of Bohmian mechanics arises from uh us not knowing the initial conditions precisely so like you know in the uh double slit experiment we know if if we knew where the particle was in the wave function exactly every single time as it passed through the slits we would know we would know where it was going to hit every single time Right, but because we don't know exactly where it is, it, it goes off in different directions. So the best we can hope for is some sort of statistical uh, 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 interpretation or analysis of it. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Bohmian mechanics is just—it's completely deterministic. You know, start with the initial conditions; they will tell you exactly what's going to happen for the rest of eternity. There is no, there is no collapsing of the wave function based on probabilities and stuff like that yeah and and the the, yeah so then it's just like you know however the way the way i i kind of saw it and and i interpreted it the readings was just like you know the more precise you could know where the particle is to start out with the the more precise you're going to know where it ends up Mm -hmm. because the position is absolute like there is a position of the particle where where you know like uh Heisenberg's uncertainty principle says, you know, okay, position and and speed can only be known to some degree. You know, you can only know one more than the other. But but Bohm says, like, no, the the position is absolute. We know where we know that it has a position. We just don't know exactly what that position is. Right. Right. Yeah. I think the book I read with interviews, David Bohm has a quote, which I think is a pretty good one at summarizing his views on on how things are working in in science in general in physics in particular and he says for thousands of years people haven't asked themselves the right questions in quantum theory we're now asking a certain kind of question and we're getting a certain kind of answer we may be putting ourselves into a trap by restricting ourselves to this way of thinking so i, I think it's his knock on copenhagen and and how by subscribing to Copenhagen strictly, we're losing some other questions that might not be getting answered or not, might not even be getting asked by ignoring other interpretations. Yeah. One, one of the uh, videos that I saw had a quote from Bohm where it, I, I don't remember it word for word, but it was, to paraphrase it, essentially it was, you know, in, in developing Bohmian mechanics or pilot wave theory, he wasn't necessarily proposing like oh this is this is the real way that you know uh the world is but he was he wanted to show that there's a you know another mathematically logical way to to have all the same outcomes of quantum mechanics right and so you know like yeah maybe we shouldn't limit ourselves to this one field or this one way of thinking about it Mm -hmm. right yeah it almost seems like he wasn't even a proponent of his own theory so much as a proponent of the idea of other theories existing or other interpretations existing and they should be explored and he just happened to come up with a pretty darn good one <laughs> yeah yeah or yeah he he took uh 
the the broys and ran with it right <laughs> right yeah that's right uh yeah i i mean i don't i don't know enough to you know fully make a decision myself on like what i'd, I'd pick but it did you know it seems if it definitely feels nice <laughs> in some regard it does yeah <laughs> and i mentioned the class that i took by the the author of the book which outlines 10 interpretations of quantum mechanics 10 currently contending interpretations. And in class, we had to, you know, after we read that section of the book, we came back to class the next time and we had to go around and talk about which ones we felt were the most valid and why. And I, I was the only one that picked Bohm. I don't know why. I, I still can't tell you why I picked it, but just reading all the interpretations, it seemed like, oh, that, that, I could see that. That makes sense. Like, I, I see it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it just, you know, it, it combines your natural intuition that there are particles out there Mm -hmm. and that with with the you know uh weirdness of quantum mechanics right you know so it just generally feels nice which isn't like a great reason for (laughs) you know that's not like a scientific scientifically valid reason for choosing any theory over another theory but yeah it, it definitely like has some nice texture to it Right. And I think people actually knock Bohmian mechanics and knock Bohm himself. And he's had to fight back against people saying, you've made quantum mechanics less pretty because you've introduced a second equation on top of Schrodinger. Like it was fine with just Schrodinger. Like what, what's the problem? Like, (laughs) and you've made it less elegant because because you have a second equation now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You had to introduce this other force. You made up a force. So can I just read you the list of the 10 so people can get a taste yeah, yeah, let's hear them all. I don't even, I only know of the three main ones. Yeah, I, yeah, the three main ones. And when I took this class, it was the first time I'd ever heard of Bohm. And I went on to read more later. But Copenhagen, of course. There's Extreme Copenhagen, which was a son of Niels Bohr and a, a, another physicist also. It's Agat, I don't know how to say his name, but A-A-G-E Bohr. So Age Bohr, Niels Bohr's son. Their interpretation, <laughs> it sounds crazy. Basically, particles don't exist. So all that exists is a source, what we would consider the source of the particles, and the detector, and anything in between. And that's it. So there's no particle in the double slit experiment that leaves a source and hits a screen. It's just the experiment, and that's it. So when you look at something, there are no photons that are going into your eye. It's just the source and your eye and then the physical result of light like that's mm. it <laughs> so that's extreme copenhagen i'm not going to go into as much detail on all of them because i don't understand all of them nearly enough to so, explain anything <laughs> yeah go ahead so that sounds like it, it just takes wave particle duality and just says wave <laughs> it doesn't even do that it's like there, there's nothing like there, it's just it's just initial condition and result of experiment and that's it like that's all <laughs> Well, they got well. Okay, <laughs> that, that really sounds like shut up and calculate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's extreme Copenhagen. <laughs> then decoherence, which I mean, I, I can kind of explain this one. And this one kind of seems the most like if you weren't trying that hard to think of something interesting, this would be the answer. It's just you can't. Yeah, it's basically you can never get a perfectly isolated system. So all the weird quantum effects you'll never be able to observe anyway, like Schrodinger's cat, like all the weird stuff is basically washed away because there's always an interaction happening. You never have a perfectly isolated system. So why even ask these questions? Like that's basically like like EPR, Bell, like all that stuff just goes away because you can never 
actually do it because you're always going to have an interaction with something. And that's kind of the attack on the experimental results of Bell's theorem or the, the tests, the results of those tests, checking Bell's theorem is that it's it's somehow entangled with this environment in a way that leads to just quantum mechanics can't necessarily be the whole story because you can never get a perfectly isolated system. So that's the decoherence, which is, it seems like a cop-out, but it also seems like kind of like, I could see it, I guess. Then there's many worlds interpretation, which you talked about earlier, Hugh Everett. Basically, the, the world splits every time something happens and you get a, a new universe that's in this new different world. And all those possibilities and probabilities that we saw in quantum mechanics are essentially, all of them are realized. It's just some are more likely than others. And you might end up in a universe where one of the odd ones happens. But who knows? The other possibilities do keep going on and existing without you. You just, there's no way to check or to test that. Yeah, th- that one just like, I, I mean, I don't know all the details, but just thinking about that like yeah. blows my mind. Because the, real quick, real quick blows your mind. <laughs> yeah, because just the number of, of interactions that yep. like happen, yep. you know, that that's going to cause like a wave function to collapse. You know, so every, every time there's a collapse, essentially, you're going to get, you know, a, a large number of options that happen or splits. Yeah, just the, forks over and over and over and over again. <laughs> and every universe is existing. Anything that is possible happens. Um, and then we get into Bohm, which we've been talking about, and pilot wave theory. And then there's a few that I don't know, like transactional. I don't know what that is. I guess it was, yeah, I don't, I don't know what transactional is. Then there's an Ithaca, which is uh, coming from David Merman, who came up with the shut up and calculate, and also came up with the quick ways to discuss Bell's theorem that we talked about in the earlier episode. And quantum information interpretation, the wave function represents only information about possible measurements on a physical system. It's not to be identified with the actual physical system. It doesn't even describe the physical system under consideration. Okay, so <laughs> I don't know what that means or <laughs> how that works, but there's an, an interpretation called quantum information. And then there's quantum logic. And then there's GWR, which has three names, which you can probably guess their initials. And it, it's a modified Schrodinger's equation to make the wave function randomly collapse every now and then. Huh. Is that, is that trying to deal with the measurement problem? Well, no, because that'd be like a random collapse. Yeah, basically the infrequent collapses wouldn't affect an interference experiment with isolated atoms. But if the atom is in contact with neighboring atoms, the atom would be entangled. So it seems like it's kind of like the decoherence in a way, but it's like somehow introducing it mathematically into the randomness of the collapse of the 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 Schrodinger equation or the, the wave function. So that's, that's GRW. And then there's... Penrose and Stapp is the last one. And then they, yeah, I think this gets into some heavy philosophy with, yeah, with I think like I, I think I've heard of consciousness. the Penrose one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those are the 10. All in order real quickly. I have a uh, a few more things to say about Bohm mm-hmm. or Bohmian mechanics, I guess. Mm-hmm. That, you know, so I, we, we kind of, I think we, we, we said this a little bit, but we didn't quite, we kind of glossed over it. And to some degree, I wanted to get a little deeper on it. Is uh, you know, the measurement problem in Copenhagen interpretation versus the non-measurement problem in Bohmian mechanics? 
you know, I think I think the the double slits kind of like the standard one that people go to. But but the idea in um Bowman mechanics is, you know, the the with using the double slit as an example, the particle goes through one slit or the other one. And when the wave function hits both slits, it creates an interference pattern. And so one of the wave packets that has the particle or one of the wave packets that goes through, you know, say the particle goes through the left slit, um, then the right slit is an empty wave packet. Right. Um, and the two wave packets can still interfere with each other, even even though it's empty. So then what's going to happen is uh, the particle is going to follow some pattern and hit hit the screen. And at the screen, like like now now you have essentially a set of empty wave packets and one of them is full uh, where the particle is in 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 theory there's some like the the those wave packets that are empty can still interfere with the wave packet that has the electron in it it's just that now when it hits the screen you have to take into account you know the uh quantum the wave function of the the screen and that interaction and it essentially kind of eliminates the probability of you know, I think it's I think it's along the lines of the decoherence. Is once it's interacted with the the detector, now the wave function's kind of you know so washed out that the particle is here now. You know, like the 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 future probability of the empty wave packets interacting is almost nothing at this point, and and that's why there's like no there's no collapse anywhere. It's like it could it could mm-hmm. happen, but now that we're taking into account the measurement device as part of this um, See, system, that's interesting. I interpret it kind of differently i think of the wave function going through both slits and the particle goes through one of them following the wave function's guidance and you ask you know where did the particle hit on the screen and you get an answer and it's there but i I still like the wave function in my head still exists as the double slit pattern like like the the standard you know picture we have for the the waves going through two slits that pattern still exists it's just that the particle has reached the screen and there it is but the wave function is still there it's just that the particle has, has completed the journey and its path has been shown to go exactly where we detected it right but I, there could i think kind of like one of the things i was reading is that there could still be there can be interference in in the future between the other you know the like exactly what you said except all the empty wave parts of the interference pattern mm-hmm. could also n- still interact with the f- one that has the particle in it but once you include the the measurement device in the system i think it 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 kind of washes it out like there's some interaction between the measurement device that's going to eliminate the probability of any future interaction mm-hmm. and that's why then you kind of get this like localization there's kind of one of the, <laughs> I feel like that's the way I, it was described in the book that I read. Hmm. Yeah, um, I could I can I could see try that. And, let me see really quick. Okay, this is I, I, this is uh, a bit longer than. Okay, yeah. So here's how it's kind of described um, in this this book, and uh, maybe maybe this is a better better way of of saying you know, or maybe I, what I said wasn't exactly right, and this is. is what he's trying to say. So he's actually, he talks about the Stern-Gerlach um, experiment, not the double slit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so a particle goes through and it can either go up, down, or pass straight through. It's kind of the the three options. And 
indicating, you know, spin up, spin down, or spin zero in this case. And he, uh, it says, okay, once the packet emerges from the B field, the magnetic field, the three components of the packet diverge along separate paths. After sufficient time has elapsed, the three emergent packets no longer overlap. Essentially, they have disjoint supports. And then, yeah, so I think there, there becomes a point when the, uh, the particles or the wave functions no longer, they become disjoint from each other and they don't interact anymore. And that's why you don't have like this collapsing. Cause I think the, I think the idea is if you, if you know, I'm, I'm just kind of spitballing here. If the wave functions are still interacting to some degree, then the particle could move. Cause you don't know where it is in the wave packet. It could move from like one, one packet to another or one crest to another crest. Mm-hmm. But at some point, the the wave function is so spread out or or somehow has been interacted with that you're not going to have this. Um, you get disjoint wave packets, essentially, that aren't interacting with each other. Right. And, and so, you don't have this superposition possibility um, anymore. Okay. I see. Yeah. Maybe I didn't say that very well. I think I got it. I think I follow. Yeah. This is something I definitely want to read more about. And like I said, I, I was hoping to find an actual textbook <laughs> that went through some of the math or maybe even had like a problem <laughs> you could solve by yeah, practice so, using it. Uh, yeah. You, so, you should try uh, Holland's book, okay. um, the, the Quantum Theory of Motion. Um, and I think this is something that we can revisit. You know, we're mm-hmm. not, like I said, we're not ex- experts in this. It was our first, you know, pass at looking at this. Right. One of the other things that this book brought up is the classical limit. Did you read anything about that? No. So that that's I that tends to be another one of the the issues I guess that that people use when they talk about the Copenhagen interpretation, especially when it comes to that versus the Bohmian Bohmian mechanics. Sorry, mm-hmm. and like within quantum, there's not a uh, really well defined, or at least this author is saying there's not a really well defined like transition between quantum and classical. Like, uh, and when I say classical, I mean like your typical everyday interactions that we're used to as human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, and, he, and he talks about like he uses the example of general or special relativity where you have the beta parameter, which is the velocity over the velocity of the, the object or whatever right. over the speed of light, which right. is a uh, unitless parameter. Right. And so we say like, okay, as that parameter is much smaller than one, that ratio is much smaller than one, we we get to standard normal everyday things that we we see we get Newtonian mechanics mm-hmm. and he says you know in quantum okay so yeah here I'll just read this really quick if quantum mechanics is to be a candidate for fundamental physical theory that replaces classical mechanics then we would expect that there is a suitable limit in which the equations of quantum mechanics approach those of classical mechanics so you know just like special relativity goes to Newtonian mechanics quantum should go to classical is what he's saying. Uh, it is often claimed that the desired limit is h-bar goes to zero. But h-bar is not dimensionless constant, and it's not possible for us to set it equal to zero because, you know, h-bar is a, a universal constant. Mm-hmm. And he says a more formal attempt at a classical limit is uh, Ehrenfest's theorem. He, uh, uh, you know, he goes on to say, like, essentially, like, it, it's not this easy, easy, let this thing go to some value type of thing. But in Bohmian mechanics... Um, you have the quantum potential, which is uh, based on kind of, or well, and in, in I think particularly in Bohm's Bohmian mechanics, because he actually separated it into a, kind of a different, I, I've seen like 
the equations expressed in his kind of uh, style and then also like a more modern style where he uses these uh, R and S terms to represent the wave function that then decouples into two equations of R and S, but uh, which are just like arbitrary functions. But uh, so he he de- he defines a quantum potential that's kind of based on the how the like uh, the way like the wave function is kind of laid out and spread out. But essentially, if you let uh, and then when you, once you express it in this form, you get out uh, a force equation. You get you know dp dt or force is equal to negative the gradient of the potential plus the quantum potential which okay. looks just like a force which is you know where where yeah. the whole guiding thing comes from so essentially he, you know the this author makes the argument okay well you have the regular potential plus the quantum potential okay well take the ratio <laughs> of of that so say you do the quantum potential to the regular potential so one plus u over v that's now a, a dimensionless quantity you can if u goes to zero, you're not in the quantum realm anymore, then you essentially get back regular classical mechanics. Uh, so he, so there's, he, he argues that there's this smooth transition between quantum and classical, or, you know, like it's, it's very easy to just find that limit. Right. Whereas the Copenhagen, it's a little more abstract. Yeah. Yeah. This speaks to the correspondence principle that Bohr was always strongly advocating for but it, it, exactly what you were saying like there there should be a connection basically if an a old theory of physics gives correct answers the new theory of physics should give the same correct answers like you should be able to explain the same stuff using the new theory which i don't know that copenhagen actually has like an ability to yeah you could in theory work out you know the collision of billiard balls using quantum mechanics but that'd be a ridiculous task Right. There's no there's no clear you know like you're saying there's no clear way to scale up quantum mechanics to take care of macroscopic physics. Yeah, and with with, with Bohmian mechanics as soon as the the quantum potential goes to zero when you start dealing with with macroscopic <clears throat> scales right. then the, the yeah, you just are right back at Newtonian mechanics just instantaneously. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of a, another uh score one for Bohm. Yeah. But I did read, uh, I did, I did see a couple of videos that were talking about issues with, with Bohmian mechanics. Mm-hmm. And like, I think the, I think the biggest one that I saw is its lack of non-relativistic applicability, I guess. Yeah. And that, you know, like with quantum, uh, you have, you know, your non-relativistic quantum and then Dirac came up with the relativistic Schrodinger equation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think from there, somehow we end up at QFT and that, I don't know. That's over my head. Yeah. So, and, and QFT is a very, QFT is quantum field theory, very successful theory that is able to describe a whole lot of our world. Mm-hmm. But with Bohm or in Bohmian mechanics, you, you can't get to quantum field theory right now. And so, it really can't describe as much of the world as, uh, or as the Copenhagen interpretation can. Right. Yeah. It's worth noting, though, that Bell was a proponent of Bohmian mechanics. I, I think we mentioned that in the last episode, but it's interesting to think about someone who's thinking about this pretty deeply, and he falls on the side of Bohmian mechanics. Yeah, I I, I want to read a few more, you know, papers. Like I did see, there's there have been attempts to you know uh, make a relativistic Bohmian mechanics, and 
apparently like one of the other issues is that it it, it makes reference to a apps like Bowie Mechanics as stated uh, has to have a, like an absolute time, mm. which like we know from special relativity the, there isn't an absolute time. So right. the, the yeah, so it's possible that this could be you know like the start of of a of a new theory, new quantum theory that could lead to something. But it sounds like in its current state, it's not quite as descriptive as the Copenhagen interpretation. Right. But like, I, I don't mean that to mean that it should be shut down at all, right? I mean, right? Yeah, it's interesting to think what if what if Bohmian mechanics was put forward first, and that's how we got our understanding of quantum mechanics, and then Copenhagen came later as a as a another interpretation after everyone had learned Bohmian mechanics right. or many worlds or any of the other interpretations. Like what if they were the first ones? Well, but yeah, but Bohmian mechanics is like particularly interesting because it almost happened. Like, I mean, yeah. like it yeah. at the same time that they're coming up with the Copenhagen interpretation was, you know, De Broglie was suggesting right. pilot wave theory. <laughs> we haven't really addressed why it's called Copenhagen. I mean, Bohr in Denmark basically is Copenhagen Physics Institute. I, I don't really know exactly the history, but it was kind of like, you know, they all got together and said, this is quantum mechanics. <laughs> yeah. Here we are. Yeah. yeah. What's the, 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 that meeting has a name. Solve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think that's in Belgium. I don't think that was in Denmark. The Solve Conference. Uh, that's not just, I, th I thought that was just the general name of the because then they, I thought they had a few of these meetings where they all got, you know, all of those old yeah. physicists. Over a few years they did, but it was always in Solvay. I'm pretty sure it was in Belgium. There's like a, I was in Brussels and they had a big model statue of an atom. It's like enormous. I think it's in reference to that. Oh, that's pretty cool. The Solvay conference. I did go to um, the uh, Niels Bohr Institute for Physics in Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. I have a nice bust of his, his uh, very bald round head. Yeah. <laughs> Outside. I remember learning this stuff or I guess getting into quantum mechanics and always struggling with the names because they're so freaking similar. You have Bohr and then Bohm and then Born. Like all three of them were like huge in like early quantum stuff. Yeah. Like Born, Born, we owe all of the like probabilistic interpretation of the wave function. That's Born. Like he came up with the postulate that like take the magnitude squared of psi. That's the probability of finding something. Yeah. I feel like I still <laughs> get it, you know, all these these guys confused. Mm -hmm. Yeah. B-O-H-R, B-O-H-M, B-O-R-N. Yeah. yeah. And then like, you know, now we have Heisenberg is, you know, the Heisenberg physical one, physics one. And then we also have this meth dealer that we, we consider for Heisenberg and it's just, it gets so right. confusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least Schrodinger is pretty stand apart. There's no, there's no confusion with Schrodinger. Yeah. Except maybe, except maybe how to spell it. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely, is there an umlaut or is there not? Right. Oh, what letter is it over? Yeah. Uh, that, that's, a uh, that's, I, I think I like said this last talk, but like I, or last podcast. But I didn't uh, get too into it. But essentially, Schrodinger's cat is Schrodinger trying to express the measurement problem of the Copenhagen interpretation. Right. That, exactly. Applied to to macroscopic objects. Yeah. Like, or I mean, that's an easy way to see the problem. Basically, is think about max, macroscopic objects, not just small quantum mechanical ones. And he he found a way to to think about them. To to interrelate those two things with the decaying nucleus, which is completely quantum mechanical leading to a dead or alive cat right which is uh 
you know, he, he thought was just great. And like, he thought was, was a silly or like an, uh, a weird, not real thing. Right. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you get this, but I feel like most people think like Schrodinger's cat is like a description of like why quantum mechanics works. <laughs> like, I feel like that's the, uh, the popular interpretation, inter- like uh, not popular, the, the layman, the non-physicist. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to dispel that. Okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I thought of it that way, but yeah, the people think it's just like, wait, what is <laughs> People think it's showing how quantum mechanics is correct. Yeah, yeah, that, that yeah, exactly. That, that it's like, or that, you know, you can really have a cat in these, in like a super position of, of dead and alive or something like oh. that. That, it, that it's, I feel like most of my friends that don't know physics think it's a, uh, a proponent for the Copenhagen. Int- I mean, they don't know that it, the Copenhagen, int- but you know, proponent mm-hmm. for quantum mechanics and not like an argument against. Ah, uh, got it. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. So why don't we wrap up by just providing our sources, <laughs> citing our sources. Yeah. The, the book that I was quoting Bohr from. So one of the books I checked out had an interview of a bunch of physicists the title is The Ghost in the Atom, and it's edited by two people, Davies and Brown, and it's it's a collection of interviews with physicists, and one of them is Bohr, and it's a pretty old book. Oh, 1986, I guess it's not that old. And then the, the other book that I was referencing was the, the author's, the person who taught the quantum mechanics course that I took at grad school. Not, not as strict, you know, quantum mechanics, rigorous physics problem sets that kind of quantum mechanics course. But um, his book is called Quantum Enigma. It's by Bruce Rosenblum and Fred Kuttner. And if you go to UC Santa Cruz, Fred Kuttner is helping out with the undergraduate advanced lab, so you might have him as a teacher. And Bruce, I think, is still there. You can talk to Bruce and take his class. It's open to undergrads and grad students. And there's a whole bunch of other majors, like uh, grad students of philosophy and a bunch of different disciplines that were taking the course with me. It was pretty interesting. But Quantum Enigma, Bruce Rosenblum. That's the one that had the big list of all the different interpretations. And the subtitle is called Physics Encounters Consciousness. And I've been deliberately avoiding the word consciousness <laughs> through this last hour. Yeah. So, <laughs> but the book does kind of go into that and talks about it. And, you know, it's not as woo-woo as you think it would be. <laughs> the book's actually good. <laughs> yeah. And the the one that I've been mainly referencing is, uh, yeah, Quantum Mechanics by uh, James T. Cushing. And then another, uh, I feel like a pretty good summary for it. Let me find it online really quick. You know, it's a- while, while you're doing that YouTube channel I was referencing was Looking Glass Universe. And she has a bunch of good videos on a whole bunch of different physics topics, mostly quantum mechanical topics. But yeah, she has a series on Bohmian mechanics in particular. Oh, and then the Veritasium video. Is this what quantum mechanics yeah. looks like? I, f- I feel like we should just, you know, have a standard Veritasium yeah. <laughs> video. Yeah. Okay. The, yeah. The other website that I, I think has like a pretty good summary of all things Bohmian mechanics um, is the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Um, mm. It's plato.stanford.edu. And if you just look up Bohmian mechanics in there, it's pretty good. It, it's not really, really long, but it, it has like a pretty good summary of it. I mean, if you just Google, it, it's kind of like one of the first things. Uh, another thing that we should mention too is is maybe we can post a link to this or find a picture or something and put it in the show notes. But there's a really cool picture of the double slit experiment that you see everywhere when you look up Bohmian mechanics that like with Bohmian mechanics, you can predict the trajectory. You know, if you know where the position, the start of the particle is, 
you can predict where it's going to end up. Mm-hmm. And so there's this great picture of all the trajectories of these particles coming out of a double slit experiment. And you can see that the trajectories lead it to be clustered in these groupings, which end up being, you know, the, the interference pattern. Yeah, the bands on the, on the screen. Yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah. So that, that, I thought that was a good source. And then the last, I mentioned this book a few times, but I didn't uh, use it really, but I want to go more into it, is by Holland. It's called The Quantum Theory of Motion. Cool. Well, that was good. We're so professional citing our sources, giving references. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, yeah, if you, the author, not the author, sorry, if you, the audience, uh, (laughs) know, you know, any good papers on this or uh, uh, anything on the archive or something, you know, send us a a link. I'd like to read more about this. It's just... Yeah, for sure. I actually didn't have like a great time finding sources. It wasn't at least physical book sources. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I I never found a textbook, but yeah. Yeah. Maybe just not in the public library. Yeah. Or, well, I found like there's a lot of things online. I just have to like be on UCSB's campus in order to access it. Oh, Um, yeah. Right. And I also just like I'm old in my book values where I like I just like to have it so I can just like flip through it and go back and Mm -hmm. forth and stuff. For this kind of stuff, that's definitely true. Like an ebook, like a collection of ebooks is not as valuable as like, I just wanted to quickly reference and like look up several sources on this topic. I did the same thing for Bell's Theorem when we were doing that last, the other episode. Yeah. It's much easier to have a collection of books to thumb through and kind of get a a big overview of something quickly, much easier than websites and well, websites kind of work. Because you can get a lot of sources real quick, yeah. but ebooks not not nearly as good. But yeah, I think the advantage that like a website has, maybe ebooks have this ability. I, I've just never really gotten into them. Is uh, the the find feature? Oh it's yeah, just yeah, so nice. Sure. You're like, oh wait, what was that one thing? And you just control F, and you're like, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I was standing in the the library in the area of this stuff, and like pulled random books out and just went to the back and like looked for Bohm. And if it said it, I would go to those pages. And if it didn't, I put the book back. So that's my slow, you know, control F. Yeah, that, that's exactly <laughs> kind of what I, I did. I end up usually just like sitting on the floor and uh, mm-hmm. like, because they always have these books grouped together and just pulling out each one and flipping through it for a little while and then putting it back right. and doing the next yeah. one. Yeah. Yep. It's weird. I I went to the Quantum Enigma book because I knew that one. I went directly to it in the library thinking that's where all the other books were. It must have been, I mean, the number, it was in the correct place based on the number, but they're usually good about groupings. But it was completely surrounded by dinosaurs and fossils books. <laughs> that's weird. And there's that's no really quantum weird. books anywhere else in that section. I was like, is it in the wrong place? I'm like, no, the number, it's right. It's exactly where it's supposed to be. But yeah, it's just, there's nothing else around it. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah. So I hope I'm speaking for both of us. I think we might keep this up. You know, maybe sure. this won't be every, every, you know, maybe not the next episode and the next episode and the next episode we'll do this. But I think we should touch back on different interpretations of quantum mechanics, you know, and, and definitely we could expand Bohmian mechanics too. You know, but uh, yeah, I think I feel the most comfortable with many worlds in Everett interpretation as far as uh, next, next options. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that'd be the next big one to, to read about before we go into, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, I want to say Rosen. It's not Rosen. Who's the British guy? Pen- Penrose. Penrose. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to, uh, then we have to use the word consciousness. Yeah. It's unavoidable. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Well, I will see you all in the next episode. And, uh, you know, I think we should be saying uh, subscribe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, or thumbs uh, up. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Like share. on iTunes. Share. Uh, rate. Yep. Give us a review. Yep. 
Yep. And, uh, oh, and you can uh, tweet me at SBlueZach. Yep. I'm at like tortilla. All right. Well, uh, see you next time. Yep. Take care. Thank you.